We are in Isaiah chapter 9. We're in verses 1 through 7. It's a mostly familiar text for us this morning. I think you're going to recognize a few pieces of it. Let's read it together. But there will be no gloom for those who were in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he will make glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee, the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who lived in a land of deep darkness, on them light has shined. You have multiplied the nation, you have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with the joy at the harvest, as people exult when dividing plunder. For the yoke of their burden and the bar across their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For all the boots of the trampling warriors and all the garments rolled in blood shall be burned as fuel for the fire. For a child has been born to us, a son given to us. Authority rests upon his shoulders, and he is named Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. His authority shall grow continually, and there shall be endless peace for the throne of David and his kingdom. He will establish and uphold it with justice and righteousness from this time onward and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. This is the word of God for the people of God, and we say together, thanks be to God. So today is Christ the King Sunday. And Christ the King Sunday is a, is a feast day. Our Christian calendar is full of seasons of fasting and seasons of feasting. Christ the King Sunday is a feast day, a celebration day, that always falls on the last Sunday of the Christian year, which means our Christian year ends this Sunday, which also means that next Sunday our Christian year begins. The first Sunday of the Christian year is always the first Sunday of Advent. But we always end our year as Christians the same with this day, which is really just a chance to reflect on one of the many names that we call Christ, the King of Kings. And always the week leading up to Christ the King Sunday, I am reminded that we as a society are attracted to royalty, that we are attracted to that language of king and queen, and I think to the status that, that comes with it. I mean, you see this in the following that the royal family in England has all the way over here in the States. I mean, if we think back to last year when the Queen passed, it seemed like every TV channel was completely taken over with coverage of her, of her funeral. When there's a royal wedding, people wake up at what, like 2 a.m. over here to watch it on their, on their TVs, to feel like that they're there, because watching it after the fact isn't enough, right? We have to watch it in real time. I mean, last night, me and Madison were sitting on the couch watching a show on Netflix that's this dramatization of the story of the royal family. But we use this language of royalty to talk about all sorts of other people too, don't we? We use it to talk about athletes. I'm not really the biggest fan, but LeBron James, we call him what? King James, right? And personally, I don't know why we call him King James. Because he's the third best player to ever do it, but we still call him King James regardless. 
we use it to talk about musicians. Beyonce goes by the Queen Bee. B.B. King is the king of blues. Elvis Presley is the king of rock and roll. I've used this in a sermon before, but I am like amazed every time I see it. Do you know how many people visit Elvis's home in Graceland every year? 500,000 people go visit his home. It makes it the second most visited private residence under the White House. Is that not crazy? 500,000 people want to go see where the king of rock and roll lived. And those are just a few examples, right? I mean, my point is that we don't just use this language with these folks. We treat these people like royalty, too. We pay hundreds of thousands of dollars to go and watch them perform and watch them play. We watch their their interviews. We make pilgrimages to their homes. It's like we call them king and queen, but then we treat them like king and queen too. We are bowing down to them in some ways, like they too are, are royalty. Which I, at the very least, think can muddy the water a little bit. When we use the same language to talk about Jesus. Because if you think about it, we don't call other figures in our culture the good shepherd or the light of the world or the the son of God. But we do use this royal language to talk about Jesus. And the question that I think this day forces us to ask ourselves each and every year that it rolls around, is with all of these kings and queens around us, who are we bowing down to? Who is it that we are giving our lives to? Who do we really believe is our king? And I think this passage from the prophet Isaiah gives us a place to start when we try to answer that question. Because Isaiah here is speaking to a people who, like us, are not the best at choosing their own kings. In the Bible, we have two books, each called Kings, 1 Kings and 2 Kings. And the purpose of those books, essentially, is to tell the story of the monarchy in Israel and in Judah, the northern and the southern kingdoms, and ultimately demonstrate... That the kings of Israel and Judah fail to live up to the task over and over and over again. First and second kings is predominantly a story of a lot of really bad kings. First, there was Jeroboam who set up huge golden calves for everyone to worship, telling everybody that these were their gods. After him, there was Nadab, who we're told practiced all the evils of his father. And then he was assassinated by Baasha. And then he was assassinated by Eli. And they were both violent and evil kings. And then there was Zimri, who burned down the whole palace. And then he was followed by Omri, who we're told was even more evil than the king that was before him. And then there's Ahab, and we're told again that he was more evil than any king that came before him. You get the picture, right? Because then there was Ahaziah, and Ahaziah had no son to replace him, so then we had Jehoram, and he became the king instead. And then after him, ten more kings ruled between 841 and 722 B.C., and all of them were described as evil and corrupt and violent. This is the baggage 
that Isaiah is speaking into in this passage. I mean, this is the world that the folks listening found themselves in when they heard these words from the prophet. I mean, can you imagine living through even just part of that string of terrible kings? Israel through this period had just been plagued with evil kings who worshiped false idols and chose violence for themselves and for their people. And I can only imagine that at this point, the people are exhausted. And they almost feel hopeless. Like they're never actually going to find a king who truly does what is right by the people and what is right by the Lord. And maybe that's how you feel right now. Maybe when you look around, you see a whole bunch of horrible kings. And I'm not talking about athletes and musicians and Netflix shows. I'm talking about bad rulers who wage wars that kill innocent people, who make decisions that are rooted in their own pride and their own selfishness. Kings who leave a destruction, a path of destruction in their in their wake. Because I think the truth is, if we just pause and, and look around, our political system is different now, by and large. But we are still, I think, surrounded by a whole bunch of bad kings. Which I can't help but believe is at least part of the reason why we're still reading these words from the prophet Isaiah. Because the hope that he gives is a hope that we still desperately need. And it's a really simple hope that a good king is coming. That's it. That's all Isaiah is promising here. That I know you've had a a horrible track record with some really bad kings. But if you can just hold on for a little bit longer, I promise you that a good king is coming. And I love the way that he describes that hope in the passage. He describes it by comparing it to the day of Midian. The day of Midian that Isaiah mentions in verse 4 is a reference which probably means nothing to you when you hear it, but it meant a whole lot to the people who were listening. The story of Midian is this. Some of you may be familiar with it. In Judges, the book of Judges, the Israelites find themselves under all sorts of oppression from all sorts of foreign bad kings. And specifically in chapter 7 of Judges, they are under the oppression of the Midianites. It's this oppressive rule that Isaiah is talking about when he says they had a yoke on their back and a bar on their shoulders. The Midianites were some of the worst of all the oppressors that that this people faced in the book of Judges. But in chapter 7, God raises up a warrior named Gideon, which might be a familiar name to you. And he goes to face the Midianite army with only 300 men. And the odds are completely against him. But Gideon gives all of his soldiers a horn, a jar, and a torch. And one night they surround the Midianite camp. And all at the same time they begin to blow into their horns as loud as they can. They smash their jars on the rocks. And they begin to wave their torches in the air. Which caused the Midianites to panic. And they ran away 
which turned out to be a huge victory for the people of Israel. It is such a good story. If you have never read that story, go home. It sounds like boring homework, but it's not, I promise. Peel open that Bible and read chapter 7 of Judges. It is so good, y'all. The storytelling is so good. But it was a huge victory for Israel. Their oppressors ran away, and nobody was harmed. So for those listening, the day of Midian was a day of of salvation, a day of victory, and a day of independence. I mean, they may not have smoked ribs and listened to Toby Keith and spent the day at the lake like we do for the 4th, but it was a day, I promise you, that everybody remembered, a day that was impossible to forget because it was a day of hope. It was a day where no matter where you found yourself, you could at least remember that if the story holds true, the bad kings will never get the last word. That when push comes to shove, all those bad kings out there, that really they don't stand a chance. Because freedom and hope are coming. Because according to Isaiah, right, a good king is coming. And Isaiah says, look, this good king is going to be completely different than all the other kings that you've gotten to know. He's going to be a wonderful counselor. He's going to be a mighty God. He's going to be an everlasting father. They're going to call him Prince of Peace because under his rule, there will be endless peace. I mean, now that you know just a little bit about the context, I mean, can you see the contrast between this king, this ruler, and all the other rulers that these people have been dealing with in their past? I mean, this king is going to comfort instead of choosing war. This king is going to be like an everlasting father. He's actually going to be there when we need him the most. This king is going to be faithful. This king is going to be worthy of worship. This king will be a mighty God who can actually hold our hope, who's not going to let us down. This will be a king who over and over again will choose peace, so much so that that's what he's going to be known for. I mean, I don't know about y'all, but I think that's a hope that we still need today, is it, is it not? I think we need to be reminded today more than ever that the only one who can actually hold our hope, the only one who can grant us true freedom, the only one who can give us purpose, the only one who can keep the promises that he makes to us, the only one who can give us peace, true, endless peace, the only one who can give us another day of Midian is Christ the King. Christ the King of Kings. For me, I, I love that this, this feast day, this, this Christ the King Sunday falls on the last Sunday of the Christian year, the, the Sunday before Advent. It's like we get a moment right before that, that holy season where we journey to the manger to see this child and see this King of Kings come into the world. We get just a moment to pause and ask ourselves that question. With all of these kings around us, who are we going to bow down to? Because for me, at least, this day is is an opportunity to resubmit our lives to the true king of kings. 
to in a sense just renew our our commitment to him to be reminded that we should be placing him above everything else in our lives to remind ourselves that, that as we wrap up the Christmas, the Christian year and, and we prepare ourselves for what feels like a reset as we begin Advent and the journey to the manger and the Christmas celebration, that there is only one king who deserves our worship and deserves our devotion. There's only one king who can actually hold our hope, and that is Christ the king. The question remains, doesn't it? Who are we going to bow down to? And look, I mean, just just so you don't have the wrong idea about what, what I'm asking you to do, bowing down to the king of kings, it isn't just this, this passive thing. It isn't just saying the right words with our mouth. It's, it's an active thing, I believe. I believe that truly bowing down to the king of kings is something that we do. It's a way that we live. Because for me, bowing down to the, to the king of kings looks like being able and, and being willing to go wherever it is that we feel like he is, is leading us. I mean, bowing down, I think, looks a whole lot like dropping our nets. Bowing down to me looks like being willing to use our gifts for the kingdom of God. It looks like being a people who are willing to bear our own crosses. I mean, I think bowing down to this king looks like being willing to love our neighbor even when we would kind of prefer not to. Or fighting for justice and being sure to not forget the people that live on the fringes of society. Or living lives of generosity even when we don't know if the numbers are going to completely add up the way that we want them to. I mean, when we bow down to this king, what we're saying we're going to do is build our lives on that firm foundation that is the life, death, and resurrection of Christ, trusting that it is more than enough. Which means that bowing down to this king is something that we have to choose to do each and every day. Trusting that he can and he will hold our hope. So friends, this morning, I, I hope you'll hear the words of hope that we hear from the prophet Isaiah. That a good king is coming. And that we might simply be a people who are willing to bow down. A people who want nothing more than to live out that name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Hey friends, I just wanted to take a moment and say thank you for tuning into our message this week in the gathering. We hope you found it meaningful and life-giving. As always, you're invited to join us for worship on Sunday mornings at 10 a.m. either in person here in the chapel or online. If you want to know more about who we are at Bluff Park United Methodist Church, you're invited to check out our website. There you'll find out who we are, what we have going on, and how you can be a part of it. As always, friends, if there's anything that we can do for you, you're invited to reach out to us. We are here to help you and support you in any way that we can. We hope that you're having a great week, and we look forward to seeing you soon.